the most spiritual thing you can do is just learn the practice of pausing. But if you don't learn to pace yourself with the purpose that God has put in you, friends, you'll never accomplish it. The pace that you're on does not set your heart free. Good morning, Mosaic. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome, awesome. Glad to have you guys with us. My name is Kristen, and I have a question for you right away. Is there anything about yourself you wish that you could change? Okay, y'all are lively. I like it. Listen, I met a lot of new faces out in the lobby this morning. Really glad you guys are here. But what I need you to know is this is not a monologue conversation. So the noise that you just made, the talking back, the response, I want some more of that. Okay? You guys are in this this morning. You might want to pull out a notes app, a pen. We are going to get a little bit deep this morning. But I want your participation. It's going to be really important that you're in it with me. So let me ask you again, is there anything about yourself that you wish you could change? Okay, good. Make sure you make a note of it. You don't have to say it out loud, but keep that thing in mind. Do we know where that desire comes from? Also, that's a question, right? Where does this desire to change come from? For me, a lot of times it comes from scrolling old, old photos. Like, this is my kid's last week of school, and so I find myself on the nostalgic rabbit trail of like, oh, look at their first day of school, and look at last year, and then next thing I know, I'm like, the day they were born crying for like the days that have been, you know, like it was like 87 years ago and not like five years ago. Or sometimes I think we get stuck scrolling photos of other people, and then that's what leads us to change. You pull up your phone, somehow you don't even know how you got there, you're on somebody else's feed from like two years ago, you're like, oh. Oh, okay, that, that's interesting. You gotta like double check the face with the name because you're like, this person doesn't even look the same anymore. What, how did that happen, right? And we find ourselves going on these deep dives and going down and down and down and figuring out and realizing that things used to be different. People used to be different. Situations used to be different. We used to be different. And sometimes we can be nostalgic for the things that were and wanna hold on to those. So what about spiritually? Let's turn that question a little bit. Spiritually, is there anything about your faith that you wish you could change? Last week on, thank you. Last week on Instagram, Trevor, I can always count on you to lead the people in participation. I love it. Last week on Instagram, I asked the question. I said in my stories, I said, hey, if you could change something about your faith, or I said, "Fill fill in the blank. Let me make sure I get it right here. I said, fill in the blank for this sentence. I used to be this, but now I'm this. So think about that. When it comes to your faith specifically, I used to be this, or it used to be this, but now it's this. And as I was going through the answers, I realized that there were really like two different types of categories that people fell into. The first one was, I used to be okay, but now I think I'm better. And these are people who can look back on with compassion on themselves and the people that they used to be, and they can see how they've grown and changed. The other category of people was, I used to be good, I used to be okay, but now I'm worse. These people, unfortunately, look back with regret on who they are or who they've become, looking back on what their faith was versus what it is now, because life happens, right? Life happens. Other people's choices happen, and they affect our lives. The unexpected pandemics pop up. Death happens. Things happen that affect who we are. They affect our identity. They affect our faith and how we believe. 
And some of us, we happen, right? Like you happen in your own life. And as much as you want to blame who you are or how you feel on somebody else, it really is your own choices. It's your own behaviors. It's your coping mechanisms that kind of all of a sudden, before you realize it, turned into a lifestyle where you're stuck in this cycle and you're making choices and you're making calls and you can't seem to get out of it. So before you know it, answering this question actually leaves you faced with the decision, I know I can change, but will I change again? Can I change again? Or is this just who I am now? Am I stuck being this person? And so I think for those of you who can feel the weight of this tension and you can see it as hard as it is, please can I encourage you that you are in a good place. I think that you are in a really good place. If you feel grieved, if you feel conflicted over your spiritual life, you don't know exactly what your faith is, how it's growing, what it's becoming, who you are becoming as a person, I would call that commitment faith. I call that commitment to wrestling through and figuring it out faith. Because the alternative is just like a happy denial. The alternative is just kind of pretending that everything is good. You're going to convince other people that you're good. You're going to convince yourself that you're good. Remember like in the middle, early days of the pandemic when we realized what it meant to be Zoom ready for work, right? Everybody was doing Zoom calls. Everything was on Zoom. And we had this collective like brilliant idea, hey, we can get ready from the top up and not the bottom down. So that's what we did, right? I heard that there were guys, guys, who actually like took Zoom calls in their boxers. What are you doing? Like, what if you have to go to the bathroom? What if you have to get up? This is not an okay situation. Not okay. But I think some of us, this is what we're doing in our spiritual lives. We're like, hey, top half, what everybody can see. It's all put together. It's presentable. It looks good. But underneath the surface, what we're sitting in, what people can't see is old and falling apart, and it's comfortable, and we can't be bothered to find any kind of effort to try, even though we know that there are probably other better choices that we should be putting on. The problem is when we fake it, and when we only go halfway in our life, in our identity, and our faith, we feel unsettled. And that's why a lot of you today feel unsettled. And you can't even name necessarily what the emotion is. It's just unsettled. It's just off. Maybe some of you just kind of are unhappy, like not quite where you would call depression, but just like maybe life is just kind of not happy anymore, just not fun. You're not really sure when the last time is that you genuinely laughed or found joy or enjoyed life. Maybe some of you are finding yourself angry, bitter, cynical, by the way, anger is a secondary emotion because it's easier to resort to anger than to sit in those vulnerable feelings and have to admit to yourself that you're disappointed or sad or hurt. And some of you, maybe because you're aware that you're doing this, you're aware of being Zoom ready in life, you just find yourself spiraling into guilt and shame because you know you're doing it and you know you're pretending, but you don't know how to stop. I know I told you we were getting deep <laughs> today. Listen, if this is you, I want you to know we are, we are going to dive in. We are going to dive in this morning, but there will be no calling you out in shame here. 
There will be no calling you out in shame. That is not what Mosaic is about. We might call you up towards him in his love and in his grace, but this is a very safe space where we are okay with you wrestling through the faith that you are not sure of. And I wanna go ahead and lay that foundation for you so that you know it is okay to wade into the deep waters of uncertainty and doubt. If you're envious of the people who are on that like better side, where they look back and go, I used to be good, but now I'm better. I want you to know that the people in that camp have just as many questions as you do. They have just as many wrestling moments with God. They have just as much uncertainty. They've actually probably learned to let go of certainty and of knowing everything and of having all of the answers. And that maybe is how they arrived where they are right now. Even those of us who feel like we have grown in our faith can look back and in the, the humility of our own humanity say, yeah, there's actually still things that I want to change. There are actually still things that I want to improve and grow and get better at. So no one is exempt from this conversation. All right, we're going to go to a story in the Old Testament of people who really could use a faith glow up. Maybe like some of you could, where they're like, ah, oh, it used to be okay. I know it can be better. And so we're going to go through the book of Judges, and we're going to go through it somewhat quickly. Again, active participation. Go back this week. You can read Judges chapters 6 through 8. But we're going to look at the Israelites, who you may know as God's chosen people. Maybe they're like the Christian nation of the time, if you wanted to make it a little bit more relevant. And so they find themselves stuck in this cycle, trying to figure out their faith, but not really doing it well. So even though they are for God, they keep getting distracted by like shiny things and cultural things and things other people are doing. And they're like, oh, that looks like fun. Let's do that. And God says no. And they're like, right, 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 but we're just going to try it. And then we're going to do these things in God's name. And God is like, oh my gosh, I told you not to do this. No. And so he punishes them and he allows them basically to get conquered by whatever people group is trying to oppress them at the time. Of course, the Israelites cry out to God and they're like, it's not supposed to be like this. Please rescue us. We're sorry. We repent. And so God saves them and he delivers them. And we have this like beautiful time of peace until they get distracted again by shiny things. And they are just in this cycle. Okay. The book of Judges, if you start it at the beginning, it basically explains just that. We are in this cycle of the Israelites going around and around and around. And I want to look specifically at Gideon. He is going to become a great judge, one of the greatest judges. Before there were kings, they used judges for, to rule. And when we find Gideon, he's actually hiding underground. He's hiding underground in a hole in a wine press to, to um, thresh wheat which is a job that requires you to be outside, like above ground where there's wind, to separate the grain from the, ch the chaff. But the oppression of all these various Arabian tribes on the Israelites is so bad, killing their crops, killing their livestock, stealing everything, they are in like severe desolation that he is hiding. And an angel of the Lord come and appears to Gideon. And a lot of scholars believe that this specific appearance of God is called a theophany. Can you say theophany? Yeah. A theophany is one of the places in scripture, it only happens a couple times, where it's like God himself shows up in the manifestation, physical manifestation of a person and speaks to someone. A lot of scholars believe that's what's happening here, but we will soon see that Gideon does not know that. 
He thinks that it's just a guy, maybe a prophet, someone to come and speak on behalf of God that's there to talk to him. So we'll pick it up in chapter six, verse 13. Sir, Gideon replies, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Ever had that thought? God, where are you? I'm, I'm a follower of you. We're supposed to be your people. What in the world is going on? Why have you abandoned us? Why is there so much division and hate and violence? God, why aren't you keeping your promises to us? Gideon might be where some of you are right now, feeling confused and abandoned and teetering on the edge of disbelief. But the Lord turns to him and says, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you, but Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. The Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon replied, huh, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. So Gideon goes home and he makes a meal, which is an offering, not a sacrifice. The difference is a sacrifice was really intended to mend the relationship between people and God. Again, Gideon doesn't know this is God, and this is not a sacrifice. He's not trying to atone for something. They're in very, again, desolation. There is no food. There is famine, all of this stuff. So he is going home to make a meal, which is a token of gratitude, to say, thank you for being here. Thank you for showing up to help me. And he makes a meal, a generous meal. He uses an entire goat. He uses 36 pounds of flour to make, like, I don't know, the world's largest loaf of bread ever. He makes soup, he has this whole thing, and he takes it back to the angel of God. The angel of God said to him, place the meat and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the bread with the tip of the staff in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And then the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, Oh, sovereign Lord, I'm doomed. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. It is all right, the Lord said. And so to be honest, like how many of us in this moment wouldn't give him a little bit of fear, right? All of a sudden we have this like insane supernatural experience. I think we would all be a little bit shaken. I know that I would for sure. It's all right, the Lord replied, do not be afraid. You will not die. And Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and named it, Yahweh Shalom, which means the Lord is peace. I wonder if Gideon names this, the Lord is peace, as a reminder to himself that not only is God with me, but God is chill with me, like God is cool with me. God has peace with me, even right now in this state that I'm in. So we go on. That night, the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old, which by the way, is the exact length of time that they have been in oppression by the Midianites. 
He says, pull down your father's altar to Baal, which was another God that was worshiped alongside of Yahweh. He says, then cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar, using as fuel the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. So Baal, back then, there were a lot of gods, right? We talk about God, we talk about Yahweh, we talk about the one God we believe in, but culturally, there were many, many, many gods. That's kind of what I was referring to, like the shiny things that the Israelites kept getting distracted by. They would get distracted by these other gods. And Baal, one of the things that he did, one of his powers was to help control the weather. Since they are in such a time of famine and desolation, the Israelites found themselves praying to Baal even more because he controlled the agriculture, not realizing that they're actually making it worse for themselves by turning their back on Yahweh to worship another false god. And it seems like God here is saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go out to the thing that people are worshiping publicly instead of me, and I want you to tear that down. I want you to tear it down and then use it to bring me glory, to remind people that I am the one true God. I am the one that can help them. So Gideon does that. He says, verse 27, Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord commanded, but he did it at night because he was what? Afraid, afraid of the other members of his father's household and the people of the town. So he does it. At night, and the people wake up in the morning and they're like, Well, we don't love this. Actually, you tore down the thing that we worship. You tore down the way that we show God's our appreciation that we want them to do these things. And so they call his dad and they're like, Hey, Joash, come say goodbye to your son here because he's got to go. Like, this is unforgivable. He's out. We got to kill him. But Joash, all of a sudden, seems to snap out of it. And he responds, he shouted to the mob that confronted him, why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If Baal truly is a God, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. From then on, Gideon was called Jerub Baal, which means let Baal defend himself because he broke down Baal's altar. Other translations say that Jerubbaal means let Baal strive against or let Baal contend with. It's almost as if Gideon, by trusting and following God's lead, gets transformed by someone who recoils in fear to someone who can handle the fight. By just trusting God, he seems to have this new identity and this transformation. I think there are multiple places in Gideon's story where he could look back and go, how did I get here? I used to be different. Things used to be different. When he was hiding underground, when he was hiding from fear, when God was speaking to him and he didn't even realize that it was God, when he was acting in fear, when his life was being threatened. But we know that he becomes one of the greatest judges. This is not the guy that we're seeing so far in this story. So the question is, how does he get there? How does he evolve in his faith? Or maybe even more importantly, how do we? How do we take um, Gideon's story to evolve our faith? And I think the first step is admission. Admission. We have to admit where we are. We have to admit who we are. 
I think some of us need to take a look at ourselves and go, okay, God, I'm hiding. I'm in the bottom of a hole because I don't know how to come out. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I'm looking for signs. God, I, I admit I'm looking for other things to save me. And there is something about your faith that you want to change and you know that, but maybe you're afraid of what it's going to take to get there. Maybe you're afraid of who you'll become if you let go of some of these things. But if we want our faith to evolve, we have to admit who we are. We have to stop pretending that we're someone that we're not. We have to stop pretending that our faith is Zoom ready and present it good and beautiful and lovely for the world when deep down we know that we're struggling. Have you ever been out with friends? Maybe you're talking, catching up, people you haven't seen in a while, and the bill comes, and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I did not spend this much money. I did not eat this much food. I did not drink this many drinks. Have y'all been there? All of a sudden, you're like, whoo, I didn't realize we've been here for four hours. This bill is long. And every now and then, like, I think most of us were just like, oh, dang it, damage. But have you ever been out with somebody who tries to, like, fight the waiter? over their bill, and they are like, no, 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 I did not get two Diet Cokes, ma'am, please, sir. You know how the waitstaff handles this? With an itemized bill, an itemized bill. What they do is they bring out a list. Actually, here it is, friend. Here's every single thing that you ordered. Here's all of the things that you did. And at that point, you just have to go, all right, well, that's the damage that's been done. And I can see all of the choices that I made, and now at the bottom, what that's actually going to cost me. Admission is getting to that moment in life where you can take a look at the itemized list and go, Whoo, okay, <laughs> this is what I've done. This is where I'm at. These are all of the choices that I've made, and this is where I am now. For some of you, this is going to be your hardest step because that list is going to be a lot longer than you realize. Maybe for some of you, you've done a lot more damage than you actually want to see. And some of you, I think, need to take a step even past an itemized list because you need to come to terms with who you actually are right now and who these, how these things have changed you and changed you as a person. You're, you're way past like Zoom ready because the person that you're actually pretending to be is gone. The person that you're pretending to be is not even around anymore. And that's the reason that you feel so confused and unsettled and defeated because you are desperately trying to convince other people. You're desperately trying to convince yourself, no, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is the person I am, but that person no longer exists. I need to hand a really tender truth to some of you right now, which is that person that you're trying to be, that person that you're trying to convince everyone else that you are, that person is not coming back. You have changed. Life has changed you. You have seen things. And it's changed the way that you see God. It's changed the way that you engage with people. It's changed the way that you trust people. It's changed the way that you approach new relationships. You have new perspectives, new ways of seeing life, and it has affected everything about not only how you see God, but how you see yourself in him. 
And before we can move on, before we can evolve, before we can change into someone else, we have to admit where we're starting from. But it doesn't mean that you have to be stuck right there. Admission does not mean that you have to be stuck in this place. Maybe like Gideon, what you need to do is go tear down an altar of your spiritual identity. Maybe you need to tear down a family altar. That's what Gideon's was. It was of his father. Maybe you need to tear down and sacrifice whatever it was that's been dictating to you. This is what your Christian identity looks like because it no longer is working. Jesus said in John 12, he said, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I think some of you maybe are fighting the death of who you used to be and you need to let it go. Just like a seed right in the ground, a seed cannot grow until it breaks open. I think some of us are being contained by this first version of ourselves. This is my Christianity. This is who I am. This is who I became in my 20s. This is who I found out I was in college. This is who I decided I was as a Christian when I very first learned about God to begin with. For some of you, that containment is keeping you stuck. You need to let it break off. You need to let that old version of yourself die so that God can grow from within you what he actually has for your future, so that you can grow into something and someone even more beautiful. Gideon's faith didn't grow in a sense until he, until he died and became someone else, till he had a new identity. But he didn't get that new name or that new identity until he had admitted who he was. I'm the weakest in my family. We can't do this. We have no strength. We have no power. That, when he finally could let go of those things and admit to God, hey, here's where I am, that's when God gave him a new identity. Could it be that you aren't who you used to be because that person just doesn't fit anymore? That spiritual identity just doesn't fit anymore and God is trying to grow you into something else. Maybe you're not the person even that you want to be, that you have the potential to be, because that old version, that shell that you're holding onto is preventing you from becoming the person that you want to be. I think we have to ask ourselves honestly, who are you right now? And how is your identity affecting your faith? First step. As we continue on in the story, the Midianites are forming alliances with other nations and they're all camping out. They're like in a valley waiting to attack the Israelites. And meanwhile, it says the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. So God is there. He is moving. And they're gathering warriors from all of these other nations and they're growing the Israelite army to the point that there are 32,000 people ready to fight alongside them. 32,000 people. Gideon's like wearing the power and the spirit of the Lord, but Gideon, still in the process, just like we are of evolving his faith, still not convinced. He's still not convinced. So he's like, God, I hear you, but like, do you want to sleep on it? Like, let's just see if you want to change your mind. I'm just going to give you 
one more chance. Verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you are going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowlful of water, just as he asked. So Gideon was like, yay, let's go. No, no. Then Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me. But let me make one more request. Like this time, flip it around, reverse it. Let's do it the other way. He says, let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet. That way I know somebody didn't come in here and just like spill on the carpet, you know? Like who knows? So that night, God did as Gideon asked again. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. So Gideon says, okay, all right. God, you did this. You let me test you twice. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. So he goes, gets ready to lead his army of 32,000 people into battle. But this time it's God who's like, "Mm, actually, hang on. Before you do that, verse uh, Judges 7, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Therefore, Tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who are willing to fight. God was like, listen, whether they're going to admit it to themselves or not, I I know these people. I know my people. Remember that cycle that they're stuck in? I know that this is probably not the last of this. So I'm not going to let them have, you know, all the power and control him. You're like, yay, look what we did for ourselves. So 22,000 of them take the out. They peace out on Gideon. They're like, bye-bye. And that feels super extreme, right? God's not done yet though. But the Lord told Gideon, there are still too many Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. And we're gonna pause right here for a second because it is about to get wild. I have to ask you a question first. When you go to the bathroom and the toilet paper is like running out and you have to replace it because by the way, you should replace it if it's running out. Think about this. It's a very polarizing question. Does it go over or does it go under? I know this is a weird, y'all are like, what a weird question to ask right in the middle of unpacking a passage of scripture. Why are we talking about this? This is a weird question, but there is a right answer. And also God is about to do something just as weird, okay? In this story. So I just need you to be in the right frame of mind. When Gideon took his waters down to the water, the Lord said to him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. They go over here. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink water with their mouths in the stream. It's like there's only two choices here. There's a wrong way and a right way. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands, which is apparently the right way. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, 
I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. God's like, the over people are right and holy in my sight. Y'all get to stay. Y'all get to stay and fight. He was like, you unders? This, I, even I can't look past this. Y'all gotta go. You gotta go. You can't be here. You're not worthy of this fight. So Gideon's army went from 32,000 people to 300. He kept less than 1% of people with him. Now, 32,000 is not a number that I can wrap my mind around. But like in a room this size, let's just say, if that was the same percentage and we applied the same math, you would be the only one left. Everyone else is gone. Maybe if this room was like packed full, I could add you a half of a person. I'm not sure how much they're going to do for you in battle. That is the loss that Gideon is facing. Imagine how he must have felt watching over half of his people choose to walk away. And then God, for reasons that make absolutely no sense, taking out most of the rest of them. Now, some of you don't have to imagine. You're like, I know exactly what this feels like. I know exactly what it feels like to be in Gideon's shoes because I've experienced this myself over the past few years. You've watched people walk away from your life, maybe because of fear, maybe because of disagreements, maybe because something shifted either in your relationship or the culture or the community or the group that you were in and they chose comfortability instead and it caused a rift and that person is gone. Maybe for some of you, you've seen God abruptly remove people from your life that you thought would be your forever relationships and you are still reeling from the shock of it, from the loss of it. You can physically feel their absence like Gideon will when he goes into, the, into battle with 1% of his army. After we work through admission, right? That what happened happened. We have to get to the second step, which is closure. 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 Anybody would say closure is a tricky thing, right? Closure, like we all have our own idea of what closure is and what that should look like. But as I have to face it, more and more, it seems like, I'm realizing that we have to put away our definitions of what closure is because we may never get it. We may never get that last conversation. We may never get to explain our side of the story. We may never get the apology that we need because I don't think closure is actually having everything wrapped up neatly the way that we want it in a way that we can walk away from the situation feeling better about what happened. I think closure is just choosing to accept the finality of the thing, to accept the finality that that relationship, that season, that situation is over so that we can start to move forward. And friends, closure starts with forgiveness. Again, if we look to Jesus, he told us about forgiveness. In Matthew, when Peter comes and asks him, he's like, hey, but this forgiveness thing, like once and I can check it off the list, right? And Jesus replies, um, no, not so much. He says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times seven. Jesus isn't saying this because he wants us to tally our forgiveness. And then like when we get 490, which is what that math works out to, that we can be like, 
done, got it. Jesus is making a point here that we are going to have to forgive again and again and again. You are going to have to forgive yourself again and again and again. You are gonna have to forgive other people again and again. You are going to have to forgive that same situation again and again and again. Forgiveness is imperative for closure because closure coexists with grief. They coexist. They are not mutually exclusive. It's not like we can grieve or we can forgive. We can forgive or we can find closure. We don't know when grief is going to pop up, but forgiveness and closure is us choosing how we're gonna handle it, how we're gonna respond and how we are going to work through it. My friend Sharon Hottie Miller is a brilliant pastor and author. And when she teaches on forgiveness, she always says that it's not a feeling, it's an action. It's an action that we have to choose regardless of our feelings. And I think that we get to use forgiveness to redefine what holy closure can look like. Closure is choosing to stop punishing yourself, to stop punishing yourself for the thing that you did. I think in some of those responses that I got on Instagram, the people that looked back and they're like, man, I really have regrets. It's because they had acted out in a rigid legalistic faith. And so their regret is not in how they've evolved and how they've changed, but in who they were before. One girl told me, she said, I have so much regret that I died on so many hills that I don't think actually even matter anymore. They're not important. And I get it. I understand that, right? When we change, we realize and our eyes are open to the ways that we've hurt other people, even accidentally. But you have to stop punishing yourself. We have to turn away and stop looking back at who we were, at who was there, at what they did, at what we did, at what changed. And we have to choose to look forward and put our eyes on where God is leading us now. Choosing closure means that we stop replaying the offense, not just punishing ourselves, but the things that other people have done as well. You may never get to apologize to that person. You may never get the apology that you actually deserve. But in either case, you are only hurting yourself by continuing to replay the words, the unkind words, the things that were said on Facebook, the emails that you got, what somebody else said to you, what you heard about the conversation. When you just replay that over and over and over in your mind, you are only hurting yourself. And if you are stuck in a spiral of shame and guilt, this is probably where you are. You need to stop rehearsing the offense in forgiveness, let it go. I think choosing closure also means that we stop sitting in the feelings. Stop sitting in the feelings of sadness and hurt and bitterness. It does not mean that they're not going to come back. They are going to come back. Remember, Jesus said seven times 70, expect it to come back. Expect the hurts and the feelings to come back. But instead of letting them keep you rooted in something that is over, we can instead choose to see where God was in that thing. Where was God in that relationship? Where was God in that situation, in that season? What was good about it? What did he teach you? How did you grow? What did he give you? How, how did you become a better person in that? 
And then we can use that to springboard into the future and go, okay, God, I'm remembering your goodness to me then. I'm remembering and I'm choosing to see the good instead of just sitting in the pain. And so now, God, I'm trusting you still. What are you trying to give me now? Who are you trying to help me to be now? What do you want me to learn now? Closure doesn't have to negate what was good. It just means that we accept the finality that that thing, that relationship is over. I think Gideon probably had to forgive himself many times for being scared, for taking so long to trust, for finding closure in what had been. But I want you to notice that God was not bothered by Gideon's timeline. He was not bothered. At no point did God say to Gideon, listen, you are really taking a long time. You already tested me. I've already given you a sign. I've already proven this. Like, oh my gosh, Gideon, let's go. Get the show on the road. It never happened. He never said, I'm going to find somebody else who can do this for me faster. I'm going to find somebody else with better faith. What did God actually say to Gideon? I will stay here until you return. I will stay here until you return. Because Gideon was the one that left. God stayed put. And if you are in that weird middle of trying to figure out who you are, you're not sure who you are, you're not sure who you're gonna be, you're not sure what your faith is evolving into, I want you to know that God is saying to you, I will stay here until you return. He is not bothered by your timeline. He is not bothered by your questions. He is not bothered by you wanting to know him more. Whatever that looks like. God never told Gideon, hey, change of plans. You're wrong. You're doing it wrong. Everything you know is wrong. Everything you're doing is wrong. He said, I will stay here until you return. God is not mad at you. God is not mad at you. This season that you're in, this weird middle space, this place of like needing closure that you don't yet have, this, this weird space of wanting to forgive, like you really do desire it and I believe you, but you just can't seem to get there. God is not mad at you. And this is not a punishment. This season is not a punishment. This is not God trying to get back at you for not being a good enough Christian with good enough faith. He is right there waiting and he is not rushing your timeline. Can I also tell you that you are not broken? You are not broken. You are not a failure. You have not failed God. You have not failed other people. You have not failed yourself in questioning and wanting to know more about this mysterious God that truly I don't think can ever be fully known. It does not mean that you are a mistake or that you are broken or that you have failed in somehow figuring out what this relationship with God is supposed to look like. He wants you to grow your faith. He wants you to realize that he may be the face right in front of you that's speaking to you and he's just waiting for you to realize that it's him. Whatever it is that you wanna change, whatever it is that you wanna change about your faith, God wants that for you if you wanna know him more, if you wanna know who it is that he has created you to be, who he wants you to be in the future, your best self, the potential that he put in you to be a better version of yourself than even the one that you thought was like so great. The one picture that you always go back to of like, remember when I was this? 
I'm going to make this my profile picture for 30 years, even though I don't look like this anymore. God wants more and better for you, but we have to admit where we are and be able to, with willingness, go, all right, God, I'm going to close the chapter on who I was. All right, we're going to stand. I want to give y'all an opportunity, actually, to cry out. We're going to try to ignore what's going on. Next week, we are going to get into Gideon's story some more. We're going to see what happens when he goes into battle. And we're going to figure out what the next two steps are when it comes to growing and evolving our faith. But for right now, if you will close your eyes, I want to pray and just thank God for who he is. God, we thank you for the opportunity to cry out to you. God, whether this is the first time that we've called out to you, God, whether this is the first time that we've said, okay, I want to know you more, or we've been in a relationship with you for years. God, we just thank you for always being present, for never leaving, even if we never realized, God, that it was you that was right there, that was speaking to us, that was working in our lives. And Lord, we do want to know you more. God, if it's our first time, Lord, I just pray that you would just move in the hearts and spirits of people, God, that need to know you. God, reveal yourself to them in a way that is unexplainable as anything else. And God, we admit who we are. We admit who we've been. We admit the things that we've done. We admit, God, the cycles and the patterns and the idols that we've chosen instead of you. And God, we ask that you would forgive us as we work to forgive ourselves and the situations and the other people that hurt us. Jesus, we invite you in to be the healing and to be the solution. God, where no other thing can. In your name we pray, amen. All right, we are going to do one more song. Um, and as part of our response, we've got other options of things you can do around the room. We've got communion on either side of the room. We've also got candles, which we use just to represent a prayer that you have for someone. We also have a prayer team and a cross over here. So if there's something on your heart that you want prayer for, something that you're like, I just don't want to carry this around as my identity anymore, you can write it down and leave it on a post-it. There's also a prayer team over there. So if you just kind of prayed that prayer for the first time, and you're like, I think I want to know Jesus for the first time. I want to know what this actually looks like. They're there to pray with you or to answer any questions that you may have. Let's respond.